with me or listen on as I read the first three verses of the book of Acts chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And hear God's word. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And especially for this, the book of Acts, we ask you that as we open it, along with Romans in the morning, that you might richly bless us, even as you did those early Christians, through the, through the preaching, through the power of your spirit and, and the presence of, of believers. And even we pray through the conversion of unbelievers brought into our midst. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having concluded uh, Leviticus, uh, we are setting aside the Pentateuch for a time, not uh, for all time. Uh, I hope to return to Numbers at some point and then Deuteronomy and then who knows after that. Uh, My general plan is to preach Acts uh, through at least chapter 15, maybe a little beyond that, maybe to chapter 20. I want to get a general portrait and picture of the early church. And so I want to at least make it through Paul's first missionary journey. And then I think more or less the portrait is complete, although uh, there's some really good material after that. And so we may, well, we may just keep going. I don't envision it being a terribly long study. At a certain point, we'll get to about a chapter per sermon, though not for quite some time. For quite some time, we will be taking it in smaller chunks. Uh, But I think the real question to ask here as we begin is a question which I always like to ask, and that is why study Acts? And in particular here, since the most Uh, obvious and natural thing to do would be to go on with the Pentateuch. What is it about the book of Acts that is is so interesting to me and that makes me so eager to preach it? What is the value of this book uh, for this church, aside from uh, the obvious fact that it is Scripture, and we can say that all Scripture is profitable? Well, there's a special kind of profit in studying Acts. And I would answer then the question in uh, two ways, in a personal way, highlighting two points, I mean. My interest and my enthusiasm for this book can be explained along the following lines for these two reasons. And the first is this. As we study the book of Acts, we have a portrait not only of the early church, Uh, But I would go beyond that and say a portrait of the church as she should be. Now, here is uh, a history of the church, her beginnings, how she came to be. That in itself should be highly interesting to any Christian, anyone who has any interest in the church. That, as I say, of itself uh, immediately leads us uh, to, to, to wish to study this book. But it's more than just the church in her infancy. I'm saying that it is the church as she should be. That is what is so arresting about this book. The church at her best, not the church. Don't hear me saying the church in her most mature form. That comes later. 
This is the church, as I say, in her infancy. It's the, but the beginning. Or to use the language of building, the foundation is being laid. No, not the church in her most mature form. Neither the church in her ideal form. Don't hear me saying that either. For that too comes later, indeed much later. You will only find the church in her ideal form in heaven, in glory. You will never find a perfect church in this earth, on this earth, I mean. In fact, one of the things that is so fascinating as we study the early church, even as we say she was at her best, uh, and, and, I, and I'm prepared to defend that, what it was that makes me say that, at the same time, well, we find that there were many excesses, there were many shortcomings, there were many pitfalls, there were many sins. In many ways, we could say the church was a mess. And yet I'm still prepared to say she was at her best. And the reason I say that is, is this. We have a portrait here. And it isn't the only portrait we have in history, but surely uh, this is, well, this tops the list, I would say. We have what it looks like when the church is alive, when God is at work in her midst, blessing her mightily. It's in that sense that the church was at her best. What does the church look like when she's alive to God? When God is at work in her midst? That's what uh, Acts has to tell us all about. There's something unspeakably wonderful about this book. Something unspeakably interesting about this book to every sincere believer. Everyone who has any interest in the church. Anyone who longs to see the church today at her best. And it's in that sense that this book has relevance to the church in every age and certainly to our own. For I don't think there is anyone who is prepared to say that the church today is at her best, is there? And I certainly doubt that would be the assessment of history. I think the reality is that the state of the church, at least in our own land, is in a woefully sad state of decline, and frankly, embarrassingly so. But it is in light of that that we take up the study of Acts, because we want to know what, what is possible. What is the church capable of? And in particular, what is God capable of doing through the church, through sinful, sinful men and women? Redeemed by grace. What does the church look like, in other words, when she's full of the Holy Spirit? There's no Christian who should not take great interest in this book in light of that. I could even put it like this. It is to the extent that we have ignored this book that explains so much of the troubles in the church today. Let me read to you what Michael Green says in his summary of the book of Acts. He doesn't write a commentary. He has a a book which thematically overviews the book of Acts. And he says this at the beginning of his book. The Acts has so much to say to our half-hearted and cold-blooded Christianity in the Western world. It rebukes our preoccupation with buildings and ministerial pedigree, our syncretism and pluralism, our lack of expectancy and vibrant faith. Yes, this is the church at her best and it's what we ought to aim at. We ought to seek to be like her. But as a second point, which flows out of the first, we have here in the book of Acts a study of the subject of revival. Now, what do I mean by revival? Well, I I don't intend to give the answer today. In fact, the answer will come in the course of many sermons. But anyone who has any interest in revival will be interested in a study of Acts. 
who can doubt that the, the period of the Acts of the Apostles was the greatest revival in the long history of the church? I don't know that anyone is prepared to dispute that. And yet, for this reason, there are many, especially in the Reformed world, that are prepared to say, more or less, that this book uh, has little relevance to us. Because uh, almost everything we read in it was unique. You see, they say it's not a model, it's a history. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. I've heard that so many times in my life. And coming out of the charismatic church, well, I kind of latched on to that. But I'm, I'm beginning to back away from that. I'm intending to preach the book of Acts as prescriptive. Now, it is true that it is also descriptive of things that we will never see in our day. It tells us of things, in many cases, uh, that we should not expect to see. Things as they happened, not as we should expect them. Certain things we find in Acts, I will admit, are unique, such as the presence of apostles. We will not find apostles in our day. Such as the presence of miracles. Such as the presence of speaking in tongues. I'm prepared to say that. Oh, but the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit... The conversion of many, uh, men, men standing up who were once cowards, boldly proclaiming the Lord with authority, seeing the church growing rapidly. Well, I know, I know that that has happened many times beyond the book of Acts. And I know that we are warranted on that basis to look for such things in our own day. And so I'm arguing that the long history of the church bears out this point. That we might look for many of the same things in our own day. And that every revival of religion that has ever happened, such as in the Reformation or the First and Second Great Awakening in this country, resembles in many ways what we read in Acts. The most prominent features are all found in every revival. And it is in that sense that Acts becomes a kind of manual on the subject of revival for us. It tells us what it's like. It tells us how it comes about. It tells us what is the result, what are the pitfalls and the dangers and so forth. What is revival? That's what we want to know. Here's our biblical manual. That's the question I hope to answer, though, as I say, it isn't a question I'm going to answer tonight. Because this is so, to some extent, I intend to compare what we read here in Acts with what we read of uh, and know from other revivals. In history, the other great revivals is a comparison. I want to uh, hold uh, the Acts of the Apostles side by side with the great preachers of the first and second great awakening. To some extent, to study both together for, for the history of the church, as I've heard it said, and I agree, is the history of a series of revivals. And that is what advances the church through history. One revival after another. Now, let me say this as well. It is possible to make too much of uh, too much of this to treat revival as the norm uh, to say that unless we are living in days of revival, that must represent some terrible shortcoming and some terrible sin on the part of the church. Now, I am equally prepared to dispute that point. There are those who act as though uh, we should expect uh, revival all the time. But that isn't uh, what Acts presents. That isn't what we should expect from Scripture. 
But it is possible also to go to the other side and to argue that we should never look for revival. We should never expect to see revival in our day or in another day. And when we read of it in history, to discount it as something which was more or less the work of the devil. Uh, I want to read something that Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his, uh, I don't know whether it was a sermon or a talk on revival. He describes uh, this tension that the church has felt over the histories, uh, or over its long history, especially in the Reformed camp. Uh, there have been those who were always pining for revival and content with nothing less. And then there were those who always despised revival. And Lloyd-Jones is saying that both are wrong. This is, this is what he says. The result of all this confusion is that the church seems to be divided at the present time into two main groups. There is a group of people that always talk about revival and only about revival. They're only interested in the exceptional and unusual, and they tend to despise the day of small things, the regular work of the church and the regular work of the spirit in the church. The other group so emphasizes the ordinary regular work of the church and of the spirit in the church that they distrust the whole notion of the unusual and exceptional. The answer, of course, is that both are wrong. And then he offers a quote from Buchanan in his book, The Office and Work of the Holy Spirit. Buchanan says this, the Holy Spirit is not limited to any one mode of operation in the execution of his glorious work and his sovereignty ought ever to be remembered when we are considering a subject of this nature. It has unfortunately been too much overlooked when on the one hand, some have insisted, as we think, with undue partiality and confidence on a general and remarkable revival as being in itself the best manifestation of the Spirit's grace and as being in all cases a matter of promise to believing prayer. And when on the other hand, not a few have looked to the quiet and gradual success of the gospel ministry to the exclusion or at least disparagement of any more sudden and remarkable work of grace. You see, one side is saying God is only working through revivals, but the other side is saying, no, no, God is working through the ordinary course of history. And the answer would be God is working at both. Let me let me conclude the quote. The former have given a too exclusive preference to what is extraordinary and striking, while the latter have fallen into the opposite error of preferring what is more usual and quiet. We think it better to admit of both methods of conversion and to leave the choice to the sovereign wisdom and grace of the spirit. We have no sympathy with those who overlooking the steady progress of the great work of conversion under a stated ministry make no account of the multitudes who are added uh, and so on. He goes, but then finishes. But as little have we any sympathy with those who rejecting all revivals as unscriptural delusions profess to look exclusively to the gradual progress of divine truth and, sh and the slow advance of individual conversion under stated ministry. Now, what I am saying is that Acts is, Acts is about revival. It is a record of revival. It is therefore instructive in that regard. And I am saying that a study of Acts of necessity it creates or, or, or it ought to create a yearning for such things in our own day. But it would be wrong to say that as a result of studying Acts that we are therefore despising the more ordinary course of things. In fact, I think that would be to miss the point of Acts as well. For what we discover as we study uh, the New Testament is that these extraordinary days gave way to a more ordinary and settled life in the church by the time Paul was writing uh, to Timothy and to Titus. And so I think it's right in light of the teaching of Scripture to look for both things and to recognize that we are living in days 
undoubtedly, of the, of the ordinary and not of the extraordinary. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't yearn for something better and something greater. Certainly when we are aware in the course of the ordinary as in our own days that there is so little interest in Christianity, there is so little seemingly power in Christian witness, so little power that attends the preaching to convert men. In many ways, I, 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 I see a similarity, though I wonder if it's fair, between the church now in Acts 1 and the church in Acts 2. In Acts 1, they were believers, they were believing, they were capable of preaching, but something remarkable happened in Acts 2. Suddenly, people began to listen. What was the difference? It was the outpouring of the Spirit. That's what we should be looking for. That's what we should be praying for. But leave the sovereignty to the Spirit and realize that even in the day of small things, the day of an ordinary stated ministry, as Buchanan put it, that conversions might happen in a more slow and regular way. But I would ask you, do you realize that the same God who is at work in the Acts of the Apostles is at work today. And God has worked through history through revivals. He has been bringing about periodically uh, similar things that we read in the book of Acts. And it is here at the commencement of the church that God sets things in motion that cannot be stopped. And so are we wrong, I'm asking, are we wrong to expect that further revivals could occur? I think not. Well, it's for those two reasons that I wish to study this book. And as I say, my plan is to do so only in partial fashion, to stop after the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, once the picture has become clear, uh, and then to resume our study of the Pentateuch. As we come to the first three verses of the book, there are really two points which are being made here. The first is that there was a former account. Indeed, those are the first words we read. The former account I made, O Theophilus. And so Acts is presented to us not on its own, but as part of a broader work. It's seen as part of this larger account of the record in the history of Jesus Christ. And so he tells us about the former account. It was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in, in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen. It becomes clear that Acts is part two in a series. And we know that the Gospel of Luke was part one. If you compare the opening sections of both, uh, you see... The obvious similarities, uh, they are clearly both uh, offered to the same person, Theophilus. Luke is part one, Acts is part two. Both present a unified purpose, which is to give, uh, as he puts it in, in Luke chapter one, and we should see Acts in the same way. It seemed good to me, having had per perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know with the certainty of those things which, uh, in which you were instructed. Here is an account of the Christian faith, its beginnings, how it came to be, and what happened as a result of its beginnings. And the first part uh, of 
the first part of this unified work, this greater history. Luke's gospel had to do, he tells us, with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You notice he doesn't say that all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught, but all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now that agrees with what we read in Luke's gospel. For Luke's gospel is a record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as he dwelt among us. It is a record of what he taught. It is a record of what he did. All that he began to do and teach. And what was that? Well, let me summarize that briefly. You remember Luke's gospel along with Matthew's begins uh, with an extended account of his birth. It tells us how the Son of God came to dwell among us. It was as a result of being born of the Virgin Mary. And from there we have an extended record of his ministry and his miracles, his many sermons on the kingdom of God, and a record of his death and resurrection. It's a record, uh, therefore, of the work of Jesus Christ in saving sinners. A work of instructing sinners, a work of a work of mighty miracles, a work of atonement, propitiation and so on. One of the things that we might notice about the, the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ, and this will come out later, certainly uh, in these verses, but also as we go on through Acts, is the centrality of the kingdom of God in Jesus preaching. Now, that is a way to understand everything that he did. You could say, well, Jesus came to save sinners, and I won't dispute it. That's why he came. But looking at it more broadly and more globally, we could say that everything that he came to do and to teach had to do with the kingdom of God. For Jesus, in coming into this world, he brought the kingdom of God among us. The kingdom of God seen as, uh, as his own kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. And all of his miracles were a demonstration of the power of the kingdom. Letting uh, the world know, even the principalities and the powers of the air know that the kingdom of God was at work now among men. Yes, Jesus came to set up the kingdom of God among men. And this is also what his death and his resurrection testify to. In ways that only become clear when we come to the acts of the apostles. And so we also see, we also see his relationship to the apostles. His relationship to the apostles is something that stands out with great prominence as we read uh, the Gospel of Luke, indeed all the Gospels, even after he was raised. We also see his choice and commission of them before that. But I'm especially interested in the former point because it relates directly to what we have in Acts chapter 1. There is something that we find at the end of Luke's gospel, that we don't find in the other gospels, at least not in any great measure, but that we also find as we come into Acts. And there's a reason that Luke is concerned to stress this. What we find at the end of Luke's gospel is Jesus, well, I suppose we find it in John as well. Let me be honest about that. But we find Jesus conversing and teaching the apostles after he was raised and before he ascended. Now, that is something that is of special importance to Luke. And it is that point that he really wishes to expand upon here in Acts chapter 1. The relation that Jesus sustained to the apostles after he was raised until the day that he was taken up in glory. And then beyond that, what it was that these apostles did, having their Lord taken away from them. What was it he told them to do? What was it they did? 
What was their continued relationship to him now that he was gone? That's the focus here. And all of that is present in Luke. It brings us up to the beginning of Acts. But here is the crucial point which we discover here at the beginning of Acts about its relation to this former account, seeing Acts 2, uh, or, or Acts as part 2, and that is that all that we read in Luke's gospel about the ministry and the teaching of Jesus is but the beginning of what he did. You see, it would be easy for us to say and to think that in the gospels we read about what Jesus did and taught, but in the Acts of the Apostles we read about what the Apostles did and taught. And I think that there is a tendency to think this, if only implicitly. But here at the very outset, Luke rules that out. He says, I don't want you to view what I'm about to say in that way. I don't want you to, re- to view uh, Luke, volume 1, as the record of Jesus. And then Luke, volume 2, is the record of the early church. No, rather, I want you to see the gospel is but the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. And then to go on and read what he did in the life in the midst and through his apostles as what he went on to do and to teach. Do you see the difference? Do you realize that with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that he goes on, he continues to work? That's the message of Hebrews, isn't it? The way our great high priest goes on with us through the wilderness. And we're ever appealing to him and crying out to him and drawing near to him. And he's always there to help us. I'll never leave you, Jesus says. I'll come to you. I'll come to you through the promised helper. You see, the, the, the account would be inaccurate If it were to stop at the end of the gospel, we need the book of Acts. We need the record of what Jesus went on to do and to teach, for there was still work to do. And one cannot read what we read in the gospels and not see that plainly. And so as we come to the second point, we see what is emphasized here as special points of interest as we commence Acts. In verses 1 through 3. The first thing that is emphasized here is the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Until verse 2, the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And we we find the record of that day in verses 4 through 8. And then his ascension in verses 9 through 11. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. What did he do in the meantime? What did he do after he was raised? Those 40 days he dwelt with the apostles. And then what did he continue to do after he ascended to the Father? Well, what Acts is telling us, and what seeing these two books in their relation to one another, Luke and Acts, is that Uh, the ascension of Jesus Christ, or we could say the, the resurrection and the ascension seen together, is a pivotal event in the ministry of Jesus and the life of the church. It represents a crucial transition in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Not the end, but a transition. An importance which comes out in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and the importance of which dawns on Peter as he, as he preaches, Christ is ascended And as the ascended Lord pouring out the promised spirit upon the church. Suddenly Peter realizes it's the ascension which makes the birth of the church possible. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit possible. And Jesus coming in this way to dwell among the church possible.
And so the resurrection and ascension are essential as a starting point to our understanding of the relevance and the teaching of the book of Acts. But then as a second point, closely connected with the first, we find the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. That is, on the day uh, that he was ascended, he taught the Holy. Uh, he taught the, the the apostles. He commissioned them. How did he do so? Through the Holy Spirit. It was we read here that it was the Holy Spirit who bound the heart of our Lord to the apostles, and by whom they were commissioned by him to carry on his own work. Jesus would continue to work through the apostles. Through the Holy Spirit who was given to them. And so too. Was the whole, was it the Holy Spirit who took Jesus up into glory. Just as he had raised him from the dead. And so too it was the Holy Spirit who was poured out. Upon the church at Pentecost. And the promise for which or for whom they were told to look and to pray. Now, that is what you have in Acts chapters 1 and 2. But really, beginning in chapter 2, what we have is the record of his powerful ministry. The ministry of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, upon their converts, upon the Jews, upon the world. How it is the the Holy Spirit brought about a powerful revival. How it is the Holy Spirit gathered together men and women and constituted the church. The Holy Spirit is so prominent in the book of Acts that some have been tempted to call the book. And, you know, the title isn't actually in Scripture. You don't see uh, this is the Acts of the Apostles in verse one. And so this is just added by the church. And some have said, well, really, the book should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying I agree with that. Just it's an interesting point. And it's a it's a uh, it's a relevant point because the Holy Spirit is so prominent. Acts is a record of the ministry And the power of the Holy Spirit. Once at work in Jesus Christ. Now at work in the apostles. And and I've alluded to this already. But let me. Well let me make this point again. A little more fully. It's amazing to see. What happens to men. When they're full of the Holy Spirit. You know sometimes we think. If only I had been there like Thomas. If only I could have seen Jesus with my own eyes. Well, I say when you say that, you prove you're just like Thomas and you would have had as little faith as he did. Well, forget about Thomas. Think of the other man. Do you realize that these same men just just a few days earlier or a few weeks earlier had been hiding for fear of the Jews? You could say in some sense they were cowards. They were overcome by the darkness of Christ's cross and and the prospect of persecution. But it's amazing to see what happens to men When they become full of the Holy Spirit. Men who were once cowards. Men who once had no power to prevail with men. Suddenly become mighty preachers. The two words which I think most characterize the preaching of the apostles. These in large part unlearned men. Was boldness and authority. Or power and authority. We read that over and over again. What was it that gave them such power in their preaching? It was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they beheld Jesus in the flesh. It wasn't, I even say with reverence, that they beheld him raised and ascended on high. No, even that was not enough to strengthen them in the weakness and the feebleness of the flesh. But with the spirit outpoured, 
filling them up to the full. Look at what they were capable of. Look at them suddenly in Acts chapters 2, 3, 4, defying uh, the authorities, being willing to be thrown into prison, many of them being martyred for their faith. Do you see the difference the Spirit makes? Do you see why Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I leave you? Oh no, Jesus, don't leave us. Don't die on the cross. I doubt your eyes could have uh, bored to see it any more than theirs. Jesus, nailed to the cross, taken away from them, and then raised and taken away again. And yet Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why? That I might come to you again in the power of the Spirit. Here's the testimony of the advantage that comes when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And you know, one of the most remarkable things about this book is the way it happens over and over and over again. You say, the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, but do you realize that wasn't the only time? Again and again we read, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we ought to look for. We ought to realize that people as weak and feeble and cowardly as we are have the same potential if full of the Holy Spirit. We, like they, might, again, turn the world upside down. We might be given power to prevail with men and even to draw multitudes into the church, not through the strategies or, or, or the, the wisdom of men, but through the demonstration and the spirit of power. Well, that brings me to my third point. The third thing we see emphasized here, and that is the ministry of the apostles. I've, I've but a few things to say about them. We see, first of all, their importance. They become the focus. I will agree with those who say the proper title of this book is the Acts of the Apostles. For Acts is a record of their ministry. And in particular, two apostles, namely the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, we, we see their relevance right away, not just in, in our Lord's discussions with them uh, on the day that he was ascended, but equally in the dilemma that they faced with the absence of a 12th apostle. Now, that immediately tells us that the, the apostles are at the forefront of this book because they say we can't do anything until we find another apostle. And so after we read of uh, Jesus' interactions with them and his ascension, we read of them choosing uh, the twelfth apostle. Well, Acts is a record of the ministry of these men. We read in, in Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty, that uh, the, the the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Now, the reason I state their importance is to say that this is indeed the work that Jesus continued to do. Yes, he began to work in the gospels, but he continued to work here. And why do I say that? Because there is still a tendency. In the church today, not so much in our circles, thank God, but but to set uh, Jesus against the apostles to say, well, Jesus said that, but this was the teaching of Paul. But really, we ought to realize it's no different that the teaching of the apostles was in the eyes of Jesus himself, that his own ministry and his own teaching and the whole reason he commissioned them on the day that he was ascended is so that they might carry on his work so that they might carry on his teaching. And so. These men were chosen. They were sent. That's what an apostle is. They were not acting on their own. Rather, Jesus was working through them. Now, am I saying that they were free from sin or incapable of erring? No, I'm not. It's very useful to see uh, the way in which Paul had to confront Peter. Now, we don't see that in Acts, but we do see it later. We see it later on uh, in Galatians. We know these men weren't perfect, but that doesn't uh, change the fact that 
in their preaching and in their writings, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were fallible men. They were sinners. And yet they were inspired by God. Jesus was mightily at work through them. He appeared to them as the resurrected Lord. This is what made them apostles. Their relationship to him. Their being eyewitnesses of his account. And so we read that he taught them and he commissioned them. So that their message was not their own. Indeed, they were to teach the very things that he taught. Namely, as the fourth point, the kingdom of God. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Again, on that day that he was ascended on high. The kingdom of God. Well, I've already said it. Let me say it again. And I plan to say it an awful lot, I imagine, in the sermons to come. The kingdom of God. This is, this is crucial to the whole of the New Testament. It was crucial to Jesus' earthly teaching. You remember how he began, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist saying the same thing. What were they saying? The kingdom of God had come and it was coming with power through the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus uh, filled his whole ministry with teaching about the kingdom of God, what it was like, how it progresses and so forth. All the way to the end, we see uh, to, to the very day that he ascended on high, he was eager to teach the apostles Things concerning the kingdom of God. And then as he sends them forth, as his commissioned sent forth ones, again, that is what an apostle is. He teaches and commissions commissions them to carry on the same work. And he does so by authorizing them to preach the same message. These were heralds of the same thing. The reality, the presence, the power of the kingdom of God, as was especially evident in the powerful manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And so these men were able to work similar miracles as Jesus was. Although, as, you sa- as I've said already, you don't see miracles by the time you get to Timothy or Titus. Well, here was a remarkable event in the life of the church. But the most important thing with respect to this statement that Jesus was teaching them things pertaining to the kingdom of God as, as concerns the unfolding of this book in the Acts of the Apostles, was that Jesus was commissioning these men to give the kingdom of God a visible form. To see, as our confession says, that the visible church is the kingdom of God. And the way, the way that men and women come to know and to experience the reality and the power and the life of the kingdom of God is by being added, in, uh, added unto the church. And that occurs as they are confronted with kingdom proclamation. And so the church is built. And thus we've begun our study of the book of Acts. My prayer, as I've said already, is that our hearts may be stirred to know and to serve Jesus as these men did. In whatever capacity, in whatever form, that we would be less like them hiding for fear of the Jews and more like them willing and imprisoned for Jesus to be like them. In other words, insofar as our dispensation allows, no, we won't speak in tongues. No, we won't find apostles. No, we won't won't work mighty miracles. But we can hope to be like these men in so many other ways, men and women who are full of the spirit, who are aware of the steady progress and advance of the kingdom of God in this age of darkness. Are we still speaking, beloved, of things pertaining to 
the kingdom of God. Is that still our focus? Is that still our concern? Do we see that re- the relevance of that to ourselves as Christians and as members of the Christian church? Do we understand the relationship between the kingdom of God and the church? Do you understand why? Just as soon as Jesus was ascended on high, the church became the focus of Christianity and of redemptive history. For it is here that the power and the life of the Holy Spirit, which is the power and the life of Christ himself. And it is that as well of the kingdom of God is both known and felt and experienced by men. And oh, that we might learn all that we can about the church at her best, in her infancy, in her beginning, as we study together the book of Acts. Amen. And let us stand together and sing to God's praise hymn 268, Blue Trinity Hymnal 268.